Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us pray. Father, we come and we are so grateful for who and what you are, the things that you do and the ways that you work. We thank you for the mercy that you pour out upon us that we don't deserve, but you give to us anyways. We thank you for life and the opportunity to live differently than we ever have before. Father, right now I pray for your words to be spoken to your children. I pray that you are honored and glorified to the highest because that's what you deserve, Father. And I pray that uh, that we can love you the way we need to. I pray that you remove all distractions, internal and external, from us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You know, it's almost fitting, right, um, this text for what's like going on in my life, having to discern God's will and Am I making the right decision being here rather than being with my wife, right? But trusting that God's will is good and perfect. And so, one of the things that I've learned through working through this text is that I don't feel worthy to to preach it to you. I don't feel worthy to bring this before you and talk about some of these things, right? Because some of them are very hard and... There may be some of us in here that may try to deny what I tell you the scriptures are saying. We we may try to justify, no, it really says this, or we can make it sound this so it's more acceptable or more pleasing to our current way of living. Because that at the end of the day, I hope that this challenges us to our core. I know it has me every step of the way as I, I look at this, right? I, even calling this living sacrifice, it's, it's right, but it's wrong. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But like, have we ever asked the question, like, what does it really look like to be a follower of Jesus or a disciple? Have we ever really asked ourselves, what does that look like? What does that mean? And when we look at our lives, if we call ourselves one of those, do we fit the bill? Do we look the way Paul talks about following Jesus? Do we look like the way Jesus talks about following Jesus? Or even the way the disciples did follow him? Have we ever really wrestled with some of these questions? So this text opens with a therefore, right? Actually, I'm going to read you a different translation of this text. One that I probably will, I'm going to actually preach from right now. I actually don't know what translation this is. I found it in my notes. But there were scholars who agreed with the translation that I had in front of me. And so I was like, hey, this works. 
It says, therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice. Present your bodies as a sacrifice. Living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is God's will, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. In Mark 10, a man comes to Jesus, a rich man, and Jesus asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. In Luke 9, Jesus has three men come to him, and the first one says, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Jesus says to him that following may cost him the comforts and the security because the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In essence, following Jesus may mean homelessness at times. Jesus tells the second man to follow him, and the man responds with, first, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus replies, let the dead bury their own. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus tells him that he has a mission that is more important than burying his father. The third man says, okay, I'm good with both. But he wants to go home and say goodbye to his family. And Jesus says, whoever puts his hand on the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Christ is saying that when we begin our work, we are to leave everything behind that we just left and not be concerned with it. Also in Luke 9, Jesus says to, pick up, to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. So here's what I want all us to do. Stand up. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Man, you guys are quick. Let's go. Let's do this. Stand up. We have crosses in the back. And every one of you are to pick it up. Because we will be crucifying ourselves today. These are torture devices, and we need to pick them up so we can follow Christ. Now, I'm not telling everybody to become monks in a monastery, but what Christ is doing is telling people that in order to follow him, in order to follow him, there can be nothing more important than him and the work he has called us to. Each of these people are being challenged to relinquish the things that they held closest to their hearts. I love this. Jesus leads by example, and he puts everything on the line for us. The same thing he is asking us to do, he did himself. Jesus lived out this life all the way to the grave. Okay, so Jesus died. Is that really a big deal? Was Jesus' death just another man dying? Or was it something more? 
So Paul begins this text with therefore, and what it is, it's a connecting word, right? In, in theological, or in, in the book of Romans, you have a lot of scholars would argue in the first 11 chapters, you have uh, Paul's theological document. They say it's the closest thing that we have to systematic theology in the Bible. After that, you have the practical of what that looks like being lived out. And the therefore is the connecting word, right? Anytime you see a therefore, you look back to what it goes to. And, and there's lots of argument on what, what that actually connects to. Does it connect to the verses right before? Does it connect to the chapters right before? Or does it connect to the whole piece that comes before it? I'm going to argue it actually comes from the whole piece, right? Because what follows it are because of the, the mercies of God. And when you think about what comes in the beginning of Romans, I wanted to read you a few lines. This is in Romans chapter 3. It says, there is not one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, run, ruin, and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no one, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Do any of us live that way? Maybe it's not that extreme, but in some fashions. And so it talks about the mercies of God. So this is going to be like a, a, a vocabulary sheet, right? I'm going to just give you a whole bunch of definitions and a whole bunch of pictures of what things look like, and we're going to put it all together at the end, right? And so it says, because of the mercies of God, Do we know what God has freed us from? Do we know? Like, no. Like, no. Do we know what God has freed us from? And how does that show in our life? How does that show in the decisions that we make, in the places that we go, and the things that we do? How does that show? Following that line in this text, it's like a college desk up here right now. Those of you who have been to college know what that looks like, right? So it says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. It says, you, will, you see, at just the right time when you see we're still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so my question again is, like, do we know what God has saved us from? And do we know what God is giving us today? Because shortly after the mercies of God, right, it talks about being a sacrifice, presenting your bodies. And what does it look like to present ourselves before God? 
I've been arguing for, for, for years, right, when it talks about being poor in spirit, that are we in a position to be totally subservient to God in such a way that we bring everything before his feet? Can we bring everything before the throne of God before we do it, right? And so when you think about presenting, and, and, and if you go with the Old Testament sacrificial language here, you, you bring, you, you have this sin that you're trying to atone for. You're bringing this animal that you're going to lay on the, on the altar and kill for you to atone for your sin. But now... Christ has already done that for us. Christ has already been the atonement for us once and for all. So there's no longer bringing an animal. Now Paul is asking, like, do you realize what God has saved us from if we really think about the brokenness and the depravity of humanity? I don't know if any of you guys ever watch the news and like, man, we live in such a bad world. There's so much pain. There's so much ugly there's so much hurt, there's so much crime, there's so much death. I mean, we just prayed about two different wars going on right now. Millions of people are being killed daily right now. Millions. And if you've watched, what is it, The Sound of Freedom? Millions of children are being stolen daily. Like, there's so much pain in this world. And do you ever think about how we live? God is asking us, Paul is asking us to present our bodies to God. God, you're in control of everything in my life. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? I remember um, when I was early in ministry and I was doing some work with some kids and uh, I've always like been one who's real big on instilling leadership in, in children, right? Like I want to raise up leaders. And I remember having a mom come to me one time and she's like, you're asking my daughter to do too much. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. Explain that to me. And she says, well, my daughter needs to go to school. And my daughter needs to get good grades. And my daughter needs to go to college. And my daughter needs to find a husband. And then my daughter needs to have kids. And then after that, my daughter can decide if she wants to serve Jesus or not. Say that again? I'm confused. Because the question I ask is, do we not know what Jesus has saved us from? Do we know what awaited us if we just kept going along the way that we were going? And what awaits millions of people in this world? By default, we all deserve hell. By default. If nothing changes, that's where we go. It's, the scriptures talk about the road is narrow and few find it. What's a few? Is it the millions that are in the churches today, or is it even less than that? And so he says, present your bodies as a sacrifice, right? So you're giving up something great for something else. Here's where it gets rough. You're supposed to give up your desires. 
You're supposed to give up your wants, your needs, the things that you think you want in life for Jesus. What are you called to? What are we called to? What are you called to? What am I called to? It was funny, I had a meeting with Patrick. Patrick's my, my, my pastoral mentor, so if you guys have complaints with this, go to him and he'll deal with me on it, right? Um, and Patrick sat me in his office, he closed this door, he goes, we need to have this little conversation. I was like, oh man, what'd I do? He said, what do you, what's your calling? What's your calling? I was like, oh, got this. To serve the least of these. Like, for real, for real, the least of these. And what, you know what I mean? Like, I, I deal with prisoners, and I deal with inmates, and I deal with drug addicts, and homeless people, and mental health, and, and like all this insanity. And that's in the church. It's not even talking about in the homes that we have where we get people straight out of prison, showing up in handcuffs, and in jumpsuits, and helmets on, and, and walking in a house like this, and having parole officers unlock them in the home. What are we called to? What are you called to? And what are the things that you think that you want that are more important than them? Because I think some of us may get sent off to Africa or Asia or Stockton to do ministry, to love on people, to show them what this life looks like living with Jesus. Can we be sacrifices for what gave us the greatest thing we've ever experienced. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if Jesus is the most important thing in our worlds, right? I don't know if, if Jesus is the most important. Like, can, I can talk about every movie. I could talk about every good restaurant I've eaten. I can talk about all these things that I do, that I love. But can I talk about Jesus to everyone? It was crazy. So I bring these guys sometimes to meet Patrick when we have our meetings, right? And I brought a guy, and he was in marital issues, right? Like big time. Like he was on the verge. He said, my wife cheated on me. I'm going to leave her. If I don't, I'm going to crack her in her skull. Like all this insanity going on. So he came to live with me for a week just so we could talk through some of this stuff. And it's so funny. He sits down. Patrick looks at him and goes, what are you here for? And he vomited all over him. Vomited. And the guy looks at me, he gets, we get in the car, and he goes, I don't know why I couldn't stop talking to that guy. I don't know why. I said, because the Spirit of God is powerful in that man. Now, this isn't about Patrick, I promise you. But I, what I want you to realize is, like, Patrick wasn't afraid to tell him some truths about himself that caused him to go home and really rectify things with his, in his marriage. Like, some serious hard truths. Hurt the guy's feelings. But those are the things that need to be said, and can we do those? So it says, be a sacrifice. Now living, now who do you live for? I live for Jesus. Do I really live for Jesus? That's the question I have to ask. Do I really live for Jesus? Right? We call this a living sacrifice, but if I really look and I, and I, and I, and I know what, I've, what God has given me, and I know the life that I live today, and I give it up to him, can I live for him? Or do I still live for me? Do I still live for the things that I want and the things that I desire?
And it says, holy. Can the things that I do be pure, righteous, not tainted by sin, not having negative thoughts about people, not having hatred involved? Can I love people right where they are? We're, we're, we're looking to do some Medi-Cal stuff with our, our sober living houses, right? And um, one of the guys that I'm, that's coaching me in how to get this all set up, he said, uh, you need to figure out what you're going to call the people you work with. He's, he's another pastor out in Calusa County, and he said, we call our, our people neighbors. We call them neighbors. Who's your neighbor? Who do we think ill of and not want around us? Not go near for whatever reason. Can I live holy for God? That the same grace that I needed for me to have the life that I live today, I give to somebody else. Because in order for me to give it, I had to have received it. But if I can't give it, then I'd probably never received it. And so do I realize the grace that I've received from God to live the life that I live so that I can give to somebody else who may come to know who Jesus is as a result of the actions that are taken because Jesus is working through me to somebody else. And it says acceptable to God. I'm like, why does it say acceptable to God? Is it anything holy, acceptable to God? But yeah, but there's one question you might want to ask. Is what I'm getting ready to do glorify God? Is what I'm getting ready to do glorifying God? Therefore, because of the mercies of God, present your bodies, your whole being, everything that you are as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God. So I need, to be, I, I need it to be pure. I need it to be uh, in action today in, in the movements that I'm going because I live for him today, and it needs to glorify him. Because I think there's some actions that we take in our daily lives that don't necessarily glorify God. They make us feel good about who we are and what we do, but does it glorify God? Are people coming to know who Jesus is as a result of watching the way we live? Or do I have to tell people that I'm a Christian for them to know? Do I have to tell them? Because everything else about me doesn't say that. Where the text went after that. Which is your reasonable service? Now, some books say spiritual worship here, but the Greek here says logical, right? So this is a logical thing to do. In the transformation that happens because Christ is now living in us and, and we are living differently, we live very different. We don't, we, we, the logical thing is be who we are. Who are you? There's a video that I watch on YouTube all the time, and it's a pastor, um, and he likes to ask people, who are you? Oh, my name is Martin, but who are you? 
Well, I'm a pastor. He said, I didn't ask you what you did. I asked you who you are. Well, I, I like to golf. I didn't ask you what you do. Who are you? And there's some of these periods where he gets some of these points with people, and like, it's like five or six rows down, and they all of a sudden get to, well, I'm a child of God. Oh, okay, why wasn't that the first thing that you said? Like, who are you? What's your reason? What's your logical service to God? I'm a child of God, so I live like one. I don't know if you guys are like me, but I always try to teach my kids, like, look, you represent me in the world. When you go out there and you deal with people, you're representing me, and so they look at me when they, think, when they see you. So do right. Do we think about that? Like when, do we think about, like, I represent Jesus to the world, and when I go out there and I interact with people, I'm representing the king. Or am I thinking about me still? I represent the king. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Who sets the standard for your life? Or what sets the standard? What makes the rules for how you understand what love is? Take a poll. I challenge anybody to do it one day. Just go out on the street and ask people on the street, what is love? What is love? What is love? You'll get a million, you'll get as many answers as you did talk to people. What are people? You get a million different answers. Because we allow the news and the media and social media to dictate how we understand the world. We even allow Christian music to do that. Theologically, not all of Christian music is correct. Sorry. No, you, JP. You're always correct. But it's not. It was funny. We were at classes, and, and, and we listened to this guy who was being uh, um, examined, and he said, you know what? Sometimes I'm really scared to study the scriptures. And I was scratching my head like, why would you be scared to study? He goes, because I'm afraid of what I might find out in there. I'm afraid of what I might find out. So what we're saying is we don't want to allow the, the, the source of truth to influence the way we think about things. We want the world around us and, and fear of being canceled to dictate how I understand things. I'm going to yell defund the police because I want, I want to be liked by people. Right? I'm going to argue for rights of things that I really don't believe in because I want you to accept me because I don't accept me. And the thing that I haven't come to realize is that Jesus died on the cross for me. So he obviously accepts me, but I still, because I can't touch him, right? I don't know that. So I want the people around me to accept me. So whatever you, I got to say to get you to like me, I'll, I'll say it. It's good. And here's the coldest piece. Sometimes we do it subconsciously. We don't realize that we're doing it. That's why a lot of us are afraid to share Jesus at work. We're afraid of getting fired. My wife always says, don't talk politics or religion with people. Why not? This is the funnest thing to talk about. I need to know who's on my team and who's not. But what are you afraid of? 
because you say you're a Christian, people are going to think that you're homophobic, right? Uh, what is it? You hate transgender people, that you're a Republican, that you vote for Trump. Like, these are all the things that, we, that come with that label now, right? And so it's like we get afraid to tell people where we really are and how we really get down because we're conforming. We're allowing the world to shape and mold us into what it wants rather than being transformed. How do we be transformed? By the renewing of your mind. So, in recovery, there's a, a process that I take guys through. Because I tell them that the way they think is distorted. It's sick. It hates, their own brains hate them. They do more damage to themselves than anybody ever did to themselves, to them. And I think in, in this sense, we do the same thing. So how do I teach them to renew their minds? First thing I do is I give them reading assignments. They have to read. They have to put new information into their brain. The information that was available to them came from misinformed people, right? It was sick. It was twisted. We need to put new information in our heads, information of God in our heads. The scriptures. I teach them, we read to memorize, we memorize to internalize, we internalize it to apply it. So I read with the idea of memorizing what I'm reading. Why? So that I can internalize it, so it's, it's engrafted on my heart. Right? This is biblical, right? It says, write it on your heart. So we read to memorize so that we can internalize it so that when the time comes, I can apply it. Because when it's a part of me, I can put it into action. The second thing they have to do is be in fellowship. You have to be around like-minded people. No, that does not mean that you don't interact with those people who don't know Jesus. It just means that you have a fellowship that you belong to that will love on you and walk with you. So as things come up, you have someone to go to, talk about. But then we get back out there and we go do the work of God and then we come back and we, we come and get nursed again. We get loved on, we get strengthened and then we run back out there again. We go do it some more. Your fellowship. We have accountability. Spiritual authority. Iron sharpens iron. Paul says that it is our responsibility to hold each other accountable. God will deal with the people on the outside. It's our job to hold each other accountable. We hold other brothers and sisters accountable to the scriptures. Do we have accountability in our lives? Are we all disciples? Like, do we have a discipler who's teaching us what it looks like to really live like Jesus? Do we have somebody walking with us? Besides your pastor, because you see him on Sunday morning and maybe on a phone call once every couple months, but I mean somebody who's walking with you through it, through life. Where is our spiritual accountability? Where's our spiritual authority? Somebody that we answer to. And then most important, the Holy Spirit. We were told that when we came and we professed Jesus, that the Spirit came within us. Do I believe that God's Spirit dwells within me? Because if I truly do, if I truly do that holy, that acceptable to God, 
that living takes a completely different turn. Why? Because the Spirit is in me while I'm doing the sinful act. And can the Spirit dwell where there is sin? Can it? That's rough. Or have I really not professed Jesus in my heart of hearts? Because the coldest piece about some of this is some of us are here just because that's what we've been told to do. I remember having a conversation with a young lady one time, and I said, why are you Christian? She said, because my grandma and grandpa were Christian. They took me to church. I said, but you haven't come to the place yet where you realize that Jesus is the answer to everything? She said, no, because if I lived in India, I'd probably be Hindu. And I lived in Asia, I'd probably be Buddhist. So Jesus isn't the answer. She's like, well, because I live in America, yes. And my heart hurt. Because no matter where we live, Jesus should be the answer because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Why does this matter? Exactly what I'm dealing with right now, right? So that we can test and approve what is the will of God, what is good, well-pleasing, and perfect. How many of us run around going, well, I think God wants me to do this, but then I don't know because this sounds really good too. Like, what is the God's will for me? Are we, I mean, how many of us throw the question in the air, what is God's will? What should I be doing? Should I do this or should I do this? Because I like to play the game, well, God could be leading me this way, but the devil definitely could be t- tempting me with this one too because it's, you know, it kind of works out well as well. But you know what I mean? He's just trying to distract me from what I'm really supposed to be doing for God. But what this text says is that if I live this way, there's no more questions. I know. Because I know how to test God's will to approve it. Why? How? When we read scripture, we come to know who God truly is. We come to know his personality. We come to know the way he thinks. And take that with the light air of knowing how he thinks, right? Because we don't know God's way. Scripture says that. We don't know his ways are bigger than us. But we know how God functions. And so when things are leading us, do we know that that's God speaking to us, right? Case in point, Abraham with Isaac. God speaks to him and says, take your son up to the mountain. I know you love him and kill him. Does Abraham know that that's God? Does he know God? Like know him. To know that when God said that to him, Abraham was like, aye, aye, captain, let's go. Boy, get your stuff, we're going. I mean, I don't think it was that easy. I always wonder, like, how that really went, but he did it. And when he got him up to the top of the mountain, he tied him down, he put him on the sticks, and he tied him down, he grabbed his knife, and he went to stab him. God said, wait! I know that you love me more than anything. 
Or will we be of the camp of people who go, well, God really wouldn't ask me to do that, so that's not God. I would never serve a God who would ask me to do that. And this is what the transforming and the renewing of the mind does. It allows us the ability to test the will of God and know that it is good and perfect right where it's at. There's a lot. I try to be quick with it. There's a, a, a song that I wanted to read to you guys. It's a rap song um, by Bizzle. It's called The Gospel. But uh, I only want to read the end to you. And this is when Jesus comes on the scene. And basically what's happening in this song is He's, Bizzle is telling the story from creation to when Jesus dies about all the opportunities that God has given to protect man, right? By giving something else in its place, allowing a lamb to be slain. So he talks about Adam and Eve and being in the garden, and when they sinned, they listened to the serpent, and they sinned, they hid themselves in leaves, and God took an innocent life, and covered them with skins. He talks about Passover and how the, uh, the Pharaoh was, was oppressing God's people. And, and he told Moses, tell him, if he doesn't let my people go, I will deal with his son. And on Passover, he said, get you a lamb. You don't understand why, but put the blood on the door. You'll understand later. And he talks about Cain and Abel. And he gets to the end. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the Lamb without blemish, sacrificed for your sin. The Lamb of God without sin. Little children understand. You can't do it on your own. It is me who covers man. I am the one who took your place when death lifted up its hand. Gave you righteousness for faith. You're the one who broke the law. But it was me who was sent to pay. Gave my life for those who hate me. I went quietly, and I ain't even trying to beat the case. I'm the offer he accepts when your work gets rejected. I'm the one who pleads your case before the judge in heaven. Knew that you were guilty, but loved you enough to serve your sentence. The wage for sin is death. I died to expunge your record. See, I am the Passover. The wrath of God is waiting. Every life not covered by the door, by the door blood will be taken. I'm the way, the truth, the life, and I'll always be. I am that I am, beloved. It was always me. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for who and what you are, the things that you do and the ways that you work, and we surrender our heart and our mind to you. And Lord, I pray that we know who, who and what you are and the things that you have done for us in order to give us the life that we live today. And Lord, I pray that if we don't, that you surround us with men and women of God who can teach it to us and show us that. Because you are so good to us, we don't deserve any of the stuff that you give us, but you give it to us. We surrender our heart and our mind to you, and we just pray that you be glorified and honored in everything that we do and everywhere that we go because we want to represent you well to the world.
Because at the end of the day, Lord, it's about you, not about us. We pray this in Jesus' name.